Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. This is the very word of God. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Almighty Heavenly Father, we are humbled at this moment and we do ask, and can it be that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, your own dear Son, would come taking on flesh and would die for sinners like us? Oh Lord, we, we marvel at the great grace that you have given to us even that Jesus Christ is the only Savior the world can ever know. We pray that you would cause us to turn from our sins and to believe in Him, that we would have our chains broken, that the dungeon would flame with light, and that you would see even your own dear Son leading captivity captive, and that we would be liberated even from the grip of Satan. I pray that would be true for every soul here, for that is the most important thing in the universe, is to belong to Jesus Christ, to know him, and to make him known. Heavenly Father, we do come to you as our Heavenly Father, coming to you as your children, coming to you with even the burdens that children bear, and we come to you imploring you, Heavenly Father, that you would come and take our cares, even as we cast them upon you, knowing that you, in fact, do care for us. We think of Hannah and Akeen this morning, even in their great grief at the loss of their unborn daughter. We pray that you would give them great comfort, even now. We pray for them and their daughter Tommy Lolo and we just pray Lord that your hand would be upon that family as they grieve death is so unnatural we see it as the consequence of sin in a fallen world and yet we're still caught off guard by it Lord we thank you that you are a God in whom we can trust for life beyond the grave 
that we know that the hope of the resurrection is real, and I pray that we would then find comfort as we look to you, even seeing that Jesus Christ declared that he is the resurrection and the life. Lord, we pray that you would help us even as we grieve various broken relationships in our lives and these difficulties that we all face, broken marriages, broken families, broken friendships, a very broken society. Lord, I pray that you would grant all of us a deep sense of comfort that you are the one who is able to reconcile all things even as people bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Holy Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight so that we would be able to be those who not only love our neighbors but love our enemies. Lord, I pray that you would mend marriages, that you would strengthen marriages in our midst, marriages that have been strained in the last, especially the last couple of years. We pray that there would be a growth in husbands loving their wives, even as Christ loved the church, and wives being able to submit to their own husbands, even as the church submits to Christ, and that there would be a beautiful gospel picture reflected in these marriages. We pray for those that are unmarried, those who are looking for a husband or a wife. I pray, Lord, that you would bring them a spouse who points them to Jesus Christ. We see it as a good and beautiful thing. Lord, I pray for the children in our midst. I pray that they would be brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that they would be able to be protected from all of the schemes of Satan to indoctrinate them into wicked ways. And we pray that even these children would be taught your ways to walk in the way of the Lord and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved. Lord, we continue to pray for our country and we pray for our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. We ask that he would repent of his sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that he would flee from the wrath to come. We pray the same for our new Premier, Daniel Smith. We pray that she would forsake wickedness, forsake unbelief, and that she would believe in you. For Jody Gondek, our mayor, we ask that you would have great mercy upon her and that she would turn from her sins and so be saved. And Lord, in the privilege even of giving us your word here this morning, we pray that your word would then be precious to us, a precious gift even as we have just sung your praises, we, we pray that your word would come to us, that it would confront us, and it would comfort us. Come and do this now in our midst by the power of your Holy Spirit, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, our series that we've been going through has been titled The Holy War. And we've been looking at conflict, the conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, the conflict even in our, our own selves, uh, wrestling and fighting against sin. We've looked at in the, in the past, we look at 2 Corinthians 10 and Ephesians 6, and we looked at the weapons of our warfare as opposed to weapons of any other earthly warfare. 
We saw our adversary, who is our enemy, namely Satan. We looked at 1 Peter 5. We looked at this system of sin, the stoicheia tu cosmi, the elementary principles of the world, this system of sin that is strategically against us, as we looked at it even from Galatians 4. And last Sunday, we saw how Satan is still, nevertheless, on a chain, active with agents who are active, active in prosecuting this warfare against us, but, but Satan being bound in a certain sense. And I would argue that for folks here who are born again, born from above, those who are believers in Jesus Christ, you are evidence of that fact because as we just sung, the dungeon has flamed with light in your lives and you have been set free Jesus has delivered even captivity captive. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, you are a slave of righteousness. And so we even anticipate the success of the gospel going forth to the nations, even in this age. And we want to certainly be praying to that end, how God would use us in the advance of the gospel. But in the interim, in the interim, as we await the return of Jesus Christ, we are called to do something in this warfare that is counterintuitive. That's going to kind of cut across the grain a little bit. We, at this time, not only need to recognize our enemies, we have to be able to know that we have enemies. We have to be able to identify them, to classify them, to clarify the hostility that they have toward us. But we are called to do something very extraordinary that is contrary to each of our instincts. It is to love our enemies. To love our enemies. To pray for those who persecute you. And so the challenge of this is to to heed this command when our instincts, the instincts of our flesh, want to go in an entirely different direction. The example that the Lord Jesus gives in verse 45 is that God our Father, our Father who is in heaven, He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Imagine that. God giving to the undeserving. And there is no doubt, but they are undeserving. They do not deserve it. And yet he sends rain and sunshine. And so we have then this call to love our enemies. And love, of course, is the most confused virtue in the modern world. You know know the hashtag. Love is love. Love is love. But the problem with that is that when you love wickedness, you love unrighteousness. You love the things that God hates. 
then that is not true love. That is a wickedness. That inherently is a bad thing. It is not true love. But how is it then, if we can identify true enemies, that then we are called to love them? Well, we're going to see as we go along. We're going to ask the question, are we, are we simply to act naturally? Or secondly, we, we do have to know our enemies. But thirdly, we're going to see that this is actually a supernatural ability to love our enemies. So the first thing I want to see is this natural instinct that I think is kind of where most of us, I mean all of us, not most of us, all of us are instinctually, this is where we're at in our flesh. The natural instinct is to act naturally and that is to love only those who are lovable. To love the lovable. And that's, Jesus says in verse 46, you see it there. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Of course, the tax collectors were the most despised people in the Roman Empire. Uh, I don't know if anybody here works for Revenue Canada. It's probably not the kind of thing you want to share with everybody. Just keep that to yourself. But even tax collectors love those who are lovable, love those who love them back. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So people who didn't even have God's law, who didn't even have the Old Testament, even they could do that. You see, this is the the natural instinct to act naturally. I mean, it's natural to love your own. There's many families here. It is proper and right for you to love your family. It's interesting that even in terms of Christian believers, Paul can tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8 that even, even the gospel affecting you doesn't then exempt you from looking after your own family. And he says, anybody who does not provide for his own household is worse than an unbeliever. So it is proper to care for your own family. You know, sometimes Christians can get, get, a, little bit, get a little bit twisted, a little bit bent out of shape, and they will then be more concerned with people outside their family than their own family. Paul will give lots of instructions in the pastorals about people providing for their own families, looking after the widows in their own families, providing mercy to people in their own families, raising up their own children in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. So even though we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it doesn't obliterate these natural bonds that we have of a husband to a wife, of a wife to a husband, of of a, of a family, parents to their children, of you towards your extended family. I've had discussion this week with individuals thinking about what are their obligations to care and provide for even their extended family. To even think about, well, who are your neighbors? Who are your neighbors? Your neighbors might not be my neighbors, but they're part of your community. It might be different than mine. It's certainly different than people in Toronto or people in Moscow, 
or people in Singapore. They all have different neighbors that they are responsible towards. And so it is proper, I think, there is a proper patriotism to have love for one's country. That's appropriate. But if there's a proper natural love, there's also then a, a proper natural resistance to enemies. We lock the church, you know. We actually lock the doors here. We don't let anybody just come in here because there's guys that would want to come in and do bad things to the church. So we lock the doors. We actually resist some people who would want to do bad things here. And my guess is you've got locks on your doors too. And that's appropriate. That's right. Because there's people who would want to come and take your stuff or do bad things to you. So it's appropriate to resist enemies in a certain sense, to fight enemies, to defend against enemies. Why do you put locks on your door? Because you don't want bad things to happen to your family. You're looking out for your family. So there's a certain sense, naturally, when that makes sense. But the point that Jesus is making in verse 46 and 47 is that this is only natural. That's the point. It's not denying necessarily that it's, it's somehow wrong to love your own family or to love those who are lovable or to care for those in close proximity to you. But it is only natural. There's nothing special about that. There's nothing distinct about that. There's certainly nothing supernatural about that. There is, verse 46, there is no reward There is nothing over and above. There's nothing distinctive. There's no distinct witness. There's no special testimony when you're nice to people who are nice to you. It's easy to do that. Now what happens then when we add sin into the mix? When we add sin into the mix, as sin affects what are the natural things that we do, well then that's when we get things like this fierce tribalism. Where, where my kin or my ideological group, I'm going to love them and care for them, and anybody outside of that I'm going to despise and hate. You, you've, you've heard this kind of language that people will use. I certainly see it online often now. Such and such, this, this person that belongs to a group or votes a certain way, people will say, oh yeah, They're a waste of oxygen. They're a waste of skin. They're a waste of space. It's it's to utterly deny their existence, to hate them so much that you don't want them to live. And so that then is the response of hating one's enemies. I would say that right now, in our modern discourse, certainly in the public square of social media, that right now we're undergoing this battle where everybody is fighting for their rights, specifically their right to hate their enemies. Think about it. Everybody is pushing. They want to be able to hate their enemies. And that's why we're getting increasingly polarized in our society. Of course, when Paul talks to Titus in Titus 3.3, 3, 
He speaks of how prior to coming to faith in Christ, he describes us in that way of hating and being hated. That's, that's how we live. If you don't have Christ, that's what, that's what it's all about. You hate a bunch of people, they hate you, and that's your existence. But that is the natural way. It is fallen. It is unredeemed. That's the natural instinct. If you're acting naturally, you're not doing anything super special. And when sin is affecting it, even those natural instincts, even if they were pure, even as God has designed, for example, marriage and the family, even then when they're affected by sin, it all takes on then this sinister, dark character. So we can't just act naturally. That's what Jesus is getting at. But we also have to admit, secondly, that there is the reality of enemies. The realities of en- the reality that there are enemies. Verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I think in Christian circles today, there are people that kind of want to act as if we don't have enemies. They want to act as if if anybody would not like us, well, that would be shocking. We're such nice people. Why would anybody want to be our enemies? And so what happens then, it's been a whole movement through the 20th century and now into the 21st century of then this accommodation and assumption that we don't really have any enemies. Erwin Lutzer, pastor of Moody Memorial Church, he's actually he's born in Saskatchewan. He says this, quote, We think it is better to tolerate error than to look ugly defending the truth. We don't want to look ugly. We're so concerned that everybody like us, we don't want to look ugly. And so in in the pursuit of what's called winsomeness, we refuse to to, to be perceived as being ugly. And yet, we have to admit that we have enemies. The hostility is real. There's people who are diametrically opposed to us. And, and I, I just meet lots of Christians who then kind of live in this kind of vague la-la land where they just assume everybody sort of likes them because they're likable. Now, the reasons why people hate us are many. There are various reasons. But today, people will hate Christians because they see us as ugly. They see us as immoral. Now, they'll marshal in all of their objections. But at the bottom, at the base level ground of their opposition, all of their hate, all of their resistance, all of their assault on the Christian believer, it all comes down to this. They hate God. They hate God. John 15. You know the passage? You can turn there. John 15 and verse 18. John 15 and verse 18. You should look at this. John 15 and verse 18. If the world hates you, in other words, since the world hates you, he's not, he's not doubting it. He's assuming it. John 15 and verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
hating Jesus. Verse 19 of John 15. If you were of the world, that is, belonging to the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, in other words, belonging to the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is, this is absolutely critical for us to understand. Is that there is an opposition to Christian believers, there is an opposition to the Christian church, there is an opposition to Christian faith that cannot be surmounted by how friendly and winsome we are. It is about people needing to be regenerate in their hearts to give up their rebellion against God and to stop hating God. And insofar as they're hating God, they will hate God's people. You know, I've seen over the years how there's, there's been many people in churches where you know, they, they think, well, you know, the church needs better PR, better public relations. You know, and if we could just, if we could just improve our image, then everybody would like us. And of course, there's an element of truth to that because Christians can be really stupid. Right? Christians can do really dumb things, really weird things. They're not godly or biblical. It's just weird or it's bad or whatever it might be. And so certainly we want to be more like Christ. We want to grow in wisdom and not be fools. But all of that is tertiary compared to other people standing before God. Do they love God or do they hate God? And Jesus said they hate God and that's why they're hating you. We have to be clear about this. See, this is why then when I meet people, or you meet people out on, in Bridgeland or in your various walks of life, you can know more about them than you think. Because if they don't believe in Jesus Christ, you know that deep down, at this deep inner level, they actually hate the Son of God. It's not that they're there and they're morally neutral and somehow I've just got to kind of be nice enough to them to tip them over into the kingdom. No, they hate God. That's why they need a new heart. The other thing they hate, deep down, is they hate this special, exclusive, forgiving love that is given to these elect sinners who don't deserve it. And they hate it. They hate it. It doesn't seem fair to them. It's kind of like a jilted woman who's jealous of a man's love for his wife, angry at him that he doesn't love her in the same way. So just as the wife is hated by that jilted woman, so is the church hated by the world. You know, people look at you, you're gathered here, people look at you, why do you, why do you think you're so special? Who do you think you are? And if you start thinking like that, you start thinking, well, I, yeah, I go to the right church, I got the right Bible. No, no, no. You have to realize, I am an object of God's special 
electing mercy. And I do not deserve it. But He has given me this special love. And it is of His free grace. And you live like that. Not that, oh well, yeah, I'm more clever than the people out there. You're not. I'm not. We're not clever. We're objects of divine mercy. But this means that the world hates believers. Matthew 10, 22. You will be hated by everyone because of what? My name. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. That was Matthew 10, 22. Matthew 24 and verse 9. They will deliver you over to be persecuted and killed, and you will be hated by all nations. Why? Because of my name. That's the ground. Now, you can make yourself, you know, a jerk, make yourself miserable, and add on to that. But the reason why people hate Christians is because they hate the name of Christ. John 17. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Or last one, James 4.4. 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Therefore, whoever chooses to be a friend of the world renders himself an enemy of God. That's why worldliness is such a threat to the church. Because we don't want to be lining up as an enemy of God. So the result then is, out of a fear of looking ugly, out of a fear of being disagreeable, out of a fear of being shamed, we have a tendency to act as if we don't have enemies. As Lutzer put it, we think it's better to tolerate error than to look ugly defending the truth. Now that's one temptation, I think. It's one temptation. It's actually then to minimize the existence of our enemies. And I think that's easy for us. That's how you, know, you want to be liked. You want to be liked at work. You want to be liked in your family. And you don't actually want to admit that you have enemies. So you minimize that. So that's one temptation. But a second temptation is this. It's to caricature our enemies. To caricature our enemies. To make our enemies look so gross and ghastly. To make our enemies so obviously unlovable. And when we do that, we set up for ourselves these built-in excuses for not loving them. When we paint them in the worst colors, then we're already pre-justifying ourselves that we don't have to love them. And people have done this throughout history. They caricature their enemies to make them grotesque. You look at the advertising in the U.S. from the middle 1800s and see how the African slaves were portrayed with grotesque exaggeration. Or 1930s advertising in Germany and see how the Jews were pictured in the ugliest way possible. And the reason for these caricatures is to make it easier to hate certain people. 
It's easier to think that they deserve to be hated when you think of them as so obviously ugly. For Christians today, it can be easy to spot our enemies who hate our exclusive gospel, our authoritative Bible, our call to holiness, our summons to repentance from sin, our promise of hellfire judgment, and even hate us for the promise of heaven's blessings only for those who submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But it can be easy to caricature our enemies so that it makes it easier for us to hate them, to mock them, to despise them. In Bridgeland, there can be a self-proclaimed homosexual man or a self-identified transsexual woman who's really biologically a man. They can claim a new sexual identity. And such folks may be completely opposed to our faith, opposed to our gospel, opposed to our God. They would be. But we have to be clear and truthful about where their hatreds reside. In what war are they our enemies? Does ignoring the fact that they're created in the image of God make it easier for us to fight them? Does denying that they're recipients of God's common grace, remember, the sun on the good and the evil, the rain on the just and the unjust. Denying that they're recipients of God's common grace, does it make it easier for us to despise them? The caricatures can even cause us then to give a pass to ungodly heroes with whom we agree on various worldly things, but who hate Jesus and refuse to submit to him. So we have to be clear that we have enemies Even some of our enemies are people that we really, really wish were our friends. Isn't this the thing? All of us. We've got got peer groups, we've got family groups where we desperately want people to like us. And yet they hate Jesus. They are our enemies because they hate Him. And we want to be liked by them. We We need to ask ourselves, with, whether it's people on the right or the left or people in high places or low places or the rich or the poor or the influencers or the unknowns, it doesn't really matter. Do you see the temptation that you have toward worldliness as you want to act as if you don't have enemies in these certain groups? Jesus said that we will be hated because of him. Now, you might be hated for being a jerk, and that's different. You're responsible for that. Right? Don't be a jerk. That's, that's not the sermon, but it's enough of the sermon. But th- those who hate Jesus, they're going to also hate the sharp edges of Jesus' disciples. And it's critical then that we're clear about who the enemies are and why they are our enemies so that we don't mislabel them or excuse our own sin. There are people who are against us because they're against God It makes them very unlovable, there's no doubt about it. And it makes believers appear ugly in their eyes no matter what kind of cosmetics we want to add to our lives. So fundamentally, we need to recognize our enemies and to love them. They're not loved because they're characteristically lovable like a cute puppy or like a close friend. They're loved in the face of... And despite the fact of their position as our enemies. 
Now, Jesus offers then the very practical advice, it's more than advice, it's a command, but a practical approach to loving your enemies. What does he say? You should pray for whom? Only those people you like? Only those people you would vote for? Only those people who are on your team, in your family, kin to you, that are close to you? No, pray for those who persecute you. I was reminded of this command to love enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Just, just this week, um, driving in with Crystal, we're driving to the office, uh, just down over here, actually over by Arnholtz's apartment, actually. And who do I see walking on the sidewalk, walking his dog? Uh, I don't think if he's here today, I'll talk to him after, but this city councilor, who in my view is my enemy. I view him as an enemy of this church. He's an enemy. He doesn't like Jesus. He hates Jesus and he hates the church. And I've had, some guys know, I've had a couple of encounters with him before. And so there's things that rise up in me when I see him that I have to then deal with. My natural instincts when I see him are to hate him. He is my enemy though. But yet, what, do I, what did I have to do? I had to stop and think, I actually need to pray for him. To pray for him. To pray for his salvation. And when I prayed for him, and continue to pray for him, just as I prayed for these politicians that I prayed for in the opening prayer, what it does, it changes my view of them. They're still my enemies. But I don't despise them. I pity them. And my pity, even my pity for this city councilor, I'm sure it's not going to endear me to him. He's not going to like it that I pity him. But I pitied him and I interceded for him to God. He didn't deserve that intercession, but I knew that God was merciful since God had been merciful to me. And I hated God. And God saved me. See, this neighbor love, even to love our neighbors, often involves loving our enemies. A neighbor love, as Galatians 5.14 and Romans 13.8 says, is actually the fulfillment of the law. And 1 John 4.8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Now, it's not love is love. God is love. So therefore, we need to act even as our Father in heaven would act. We need to imitate him. And that brings us then to the fact that loving enemies requires divine grace. It's a supernatural ability. Look at verse 45. So that you may be, what? Sons of your Father who is in heaven. And then the explanation, he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. See, this then gets to the source of it. This is the source of this ability to love your enemies. I'm of the view, I don't think anybody except a Christian believer can truly love their enemies. I think they either have to minimize the fact that the person is truly an enemy or their love is 
is just kind of phony baloney. It's just kind of put on. And I believe it's, it is a supernatural ability to love your enemies. It comes from a source that is outside of ourselves and yet has come into our lives. And the source is the Father's own graciousness toward the undeserving. And if you need exhibit A, just look in the mirror. You're undeserving. You don't deserve his favor. You don't deserve his grace. God makes sun and rain benefit the evil and the unjust. They don't deserve the sunshine after a harsh winter storm. They don't deserve the rain after a devastating drought. I mean, that's one thing. You, out, on the, you know, out in the farm country, you get these people that they think, oh, well, somebody must be living right over there because they got rain. Somebody must have done something bad over here because they got hail. No, oh, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on both the evil and the good. It's according to God's free, undeserved favor. God gives gratuitously, graciously, though people don't deserve it and they, they could never earn it. John Piper said, referring to this idea of being sons of your Father who is in heaven in this imitation, he says this, it, it, um, you show you are a child of God by acting the way our Father acts. Makes sense, doesn't it? You show you are a child of God by acting the way your Father acts. Now, if He has acted in this way, giving common grace, giving grace to the undeserving, giving, in a sense, a kind of love to even His enemies, then Piper goes on to say this, If you are His, then His character is in you, and you will be inclined to do what He does. God loves his enemies, the evil and the unrighteous, in sending rain and sunshine on them instead of instant judgment. That's what everybody deserves. So again, just you see God showing a kind of a common love to his enemies, even in the fact that he has not wiped us all out. So this ability to love your enemies is in fact counterintuitive. It is against our fallen nature. It is against our societal conditioning. It is against our own fleshly orientation. But that's the point. That's the point of the command to love your enemies is that it is an ability that can only come from God. To love enemies comes from from the way that God has this kind of love for his enemies, even for the whole world. Lamentations 3.22, you know it. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because why? His compassions fail not. And then it goes on, you know, and we sing the song, Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Psalm 103, verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins or repaid us according to our iniquities. That's his mercy to the undeserving. Throughout the Psalms are re-echoed what God said to Moses in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Or as Paul said to the Romans in Romans 2.4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to do what? To lead you to repentance. That's why he's being kind to the undeserving, is to lead them to repentance. So loving our enemies is a Godward duty. It is a Godward duty. It is about our relationship to God. If we refuse to seek God as the source of all grace, then we will have no ability to love our enemies. We'll either reclassify our enemies into these likable, neutral, or favorable allies, or we'll caricature our enemies in order to justify our entitlement to hate them and to despise them completely. But to love our enemies, to acknowledge they're an enemy, to acknowledge they hate us, to acknowledge they're opposed to us, to acknowledge that they are wrong, to acknowledge that they're going to hell, to acknowledge all of that, that they hate God, and nevertheless, to love them, only that. That can only come from God, so it glorifies God exclusively. So how's it going on this front? How's it going? Loving your enemies. How are you doing that way? Like this should be This should be getting right into your business of how you view your enemies. I was reminded of this when I read John MacArthur's recent letter confronting California Governor Gavin Newsom. If you're familiar with this. Newsom had paid for billboards in other states to attract people to come and get their abortions in California, and he referenced Jesus' own words to love your neighbor. And MacArthur challenged Newsom's presumption at using biblical language in a blasphemous way, supporting the murder of children. But what was interesting in this letter was that MacArthur did not despise Newsom. He didn't hate him. Newsom very clearly was his enemy. But MacArthur was deeply concerned with Newsom's soul. MacArthur wanted Newsom to repent of his sins and join MacArthur in heaven, worshiping Jesus forever. MacArthur didn't act like Newsom was anything other than an enemy. Very clear about that. But he didn't condemn Newsom to a hopeless damnation when there was still time for Newsom to repent. And so MacArthur very much loved Newsom enough to be a truth teller to him with the desire that Newsom would go to heaven instead of where he is destined to go to hell if he doesn't repent. 
it was an example, I thought it was just a very vivid example of acknowledging an enemy and yet loving an enemy, even while confronting that enemy with the truth. Think about the enemies in your life, at work, in this city, in your family, or in your marriage. They oppose you, maybe. They're, they're, they're an enemy. They're opposing you. Maybe they're opposing you simply because they oppose Jesus Christ. They act in ways that don't deserve your kindness. They don't deserve your graciousness. They don't deserve your love. Well, what do you do? Dave Harvey in his book, When Sinners Say I Do, such a good title, right? Isn't it true? You didn't discover that until after you were married. Oh, I married a sinner. And your spouse is thinking, yeah, I found that out too. Harvey asks this, he says this, think about the areas where you know you need to grow. For example, the hair trigger critical response. The self-pity party. The fermenting anger or discontent. God promises persistent grace to help you run away from that sin and finish well. And then he quotes from Cornelius Plantinga. He says this, quote, Human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God, and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer, to win its way. Stubborn, persistent, unrelenting grace that changes us. Now that's good news indeed. Ask yourself, you, those of you who are married, in your marriage, are you prepared to love your enemy, even if you're married to them? If you are, then you're going to need to offer stubborn grace. Stubborn, persistent grace. Where are you going to get that? Not from your own resources. You need to look to the Lord. You're, you're never going to get this stubborn grace, as Plantinga called it, unless you first get it from God. You must see his stubborn grace toward you first. Then you'll see the truth, as Paul said in Ephesians 4.32, where you can obey this. And, and he said, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. That is the key. As God in Christ has forgiven you. And so then in this way, as Jesus said, you seek to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. His perfect love toward the undeserving. And you growing in that seeking that, repenting when you are not loving your enemy, but seeking to love your enemy, not because then you're weak or not because you're, you're compromising or not because, oh, well, I want to act as if I don't have any enemies. No, you see the enemies, you see the threat, you see people hating God. 
and you give them an undeserved favor that they do not deserve. Not even in a little bit. They don't deserve it. So you speak truth to them. You point them to Jesus. You love them enough to tell them the truth. Who is your enemy? Aaron Wren, commentator, he, he, sa- he says we are in, Christian believers are in what he calls a negative world now. You've maybe heard me talk about this. You've maybe read this. Aaron Wren says this, quote, Society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressed, or Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. End of quote. It's pretty true, isn't it? Used to be, being a Christian, yeah, that's a positive. People think, oh yeah, oh well, you're religious, so that's good. Now, you're a Christian, I might want to call the cops on you. Admit it. You are surrounded by enemies. But don't simply wish them away with the power of positive thinking. Recognize them as enemies, even if it's someone who's close to you. But choose to obey God, and then you can love your enemies because God in Christ first loved you, and you didn't deserve it. God was the one who first gave you that stubborn grace, and you're able than to give that stubborn, undeserved favor even to your enemies. And you know what that does? It doesn't glorify you. It glorifies God alone because you couldn't do it on your own. And that, that is something to praise God for. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, loving our enemies seems to be one of the most difficult things you have commanded us to do we would rather take your seat and act as judge, jury, and executioner and punish our enemies. But, oh Lord, forgive us for presuming to take your seat. We ask that you would help us to obey you. But, oh Lord, we need your help. If you will not empower us with your divine favor, your undeserved favor, we cannot give love to our enemies. But we know that you supply us all things that we need for life and godliness, even through the knowledge of you, the one who has called us to your own glory and goodness. Lord, I pray that according to your deep adopting love, Father, cause us to be like you in loving our enemies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and respond in worship even as those who have received undeserved favor. Please rise. Paul, giving the reason why we should love our enemies, says this in Titus 3.3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, 
slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Sons of our Father in heaven. My prayer is that that would be the case for all of you this day. Look to Him, even the one who loves His enemies. Go in peace. You're dismissed.